Hello, every loving one of you. Welcome to Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez, a podcast celebrating the cultural omnivore in all of us. In today's episode, I talk with poet, translator, activist, Abigail Carl Klassen. Abigail's chapbook, Ain't Country Like You, was a winner of our second Digging Press Chapbook Series Award. The poetry collection explores the intersections of race, culture, and class in rural spaces. Abigail's work appears in ZYZZYVA, Catapult, Willow Springs, Guernica, Asterix, Quelly, and Post World, among other publications. Ain't Country is in its second printing, and I'm so happy to say is available at diggingpress.com. So please grab yourself a copy. This was a long overdue conversation. And I'm so happy we were able to discuss the genesis of the poems in the book and learn more about Abigail's creative process and experiences working in El Paso. Here's me talking to Abigail Carl Klassen. Enjoy. I mean, I see the sunshine behind you. We're we're here in dark, dreary Jersey, and mm-hmm. it's icy rain outside right now. But I'm guessing you're in a much nicer climate. Yes, I'm here um, in El Paso. Uh, it's been unseasonably warm. It's a, it's been in the 70s this week, and we've got about another hour of sunlight. And so we'll see what the the sun is doing in the window, kind of as we're talking. So <laughs> great. <laughs> I like to see time progressing. (laughs) (laughs) Your book came out in 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. And I feel like we didn't have time to like share the book, but you did a fantastic Mm -hmm. job of sharing the book to your audience. So I remember it sold really well. And I was like, wow, great. People are buying books during the pandemic. (laughs) And it was like, you know, a nice surprise for us. And then I think also we were still very, you were just the second chapbook to come out in the series. We we're still sort of trying to figure out ways of promoting the authors. Now that we're now up to chap, chapbook number four, I feel like now we have different channels that we're using. So I'm happy to like finally be able to interview you for the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. It was one of those things where, it was kind of, in some ways, a bummer to have a book come out in 2020. Cause like, oh, you can't do like any events. But really, it was, you know, word of mouth. And just y'all were really promoting it on your end. And so it was one of those things where it ended up, you know, working out well. We've got the second run. So yeah, it's like, uh, kind of like take two here. <laughs> Not post-pandemic, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> lower <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. And it feels like, you know, now if like because so much has happened since 2020, it's like, oh my gosh, okay, now let's let's go back and really revisit this book and 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 talk mm-hmm. about it. Because the poems in the book chronicle a particular political landscape that to me it seems like it predated 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk about when you wrote the poems and what was going around? What, what what was inspiring you to write these words? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing about the poems and the political landscape is that they really came out of, you know, where I grew up, Permian Basin, oil field country. And upon moving to El Paso in the early 2000s, really just trying to wrestle with a lot of these issues of identity, of you know, personal transformation in terms of, of politics, in terms of ideology, um, but then also using that as a lens. Now that we're like looking back 2016 and even further, I think it's interesting, like a lot of times, you know, that question comes off of how did we get here? And I think exploring that landscape of the Permian Basin really gives a lot of insight of that. In some ways, you know, the political landscape of this book is MAGA before MAGA in the early 90s, in the, the, the 2000s, sort of when the genesis of these, of these poems is. I'm here in the Northeast. We're talking about a, a regional place. Um, mm-hmm. you know, this country is so big. You know, there's, there's this mythology that we're so united. We're called the mm-hmm. United States. We're going to come together during hard times, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we're such a vast country, so Mm -hmm. many regions, so many dialects, so many cultures. And I I, I feel like that's part of this book, too. Like we're trying to you're trying to create some bridges here. In the um, I think it was the the 20 was it? No, 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 no. It was the 2020 election because the book had already come out. And I was remembering uh, a poem in there um, to all the apostates in Trump country. So, of course, you know, we're watching, we're sweating, you know, the election results are coming in. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw my home county was like 90, I think it was like 98 percent. Like it was um, or in, in the 90s, at least like in the somewhere in the 90s and the percentages of votes for Trump. And then I was thinking of the, you know, that small percentage. Um, and that's the way like it had always been, like this mm-hmm. idea of, you know, these I I call us and them um apostates in the poem, but in sort of a I don't know, in sort of like a reclamatory way, in terms of like thinking of this idea of the like rural landscapes um politically, uh demographically, um it's not this um, monolith. That was kind of the really interesting thing post-2016 election were all of these sort of hot takes on rural America, working class um, America in terms of, um, you know, figuring out what, what happened. And so I think, uh, you know, what you mentioned, this this idea of the complexity, the nuance, like of not only this particular region, um, because, you know, the Permian Basin of West Texas, you know, is sort of like the the roots and like the orientation of this um, manuscript. But really, this landscape is, can be not replicated, but it appears like in different forms, sort of like all over the country. And you can hear those echoes like of those different landscapes in there. Thinking about bridge building is I remember, you know, moving to the city, 
having sort of like a, a, a political and ideological transformation. And I would even argue, this was something I was thinking about the other day, was that a lot of people would say, you know, it is, you know, because you went to the city, um, you know, because you went to the border, you were radicalized or like you've got these different ideas or, you know, uh, we're hearing a lot lately about this idea of indoctrination, all those things. But so many of those values, especially concerning class consciousness, um, ideas of uh, work ethic and fairness, that like this, this, this idea, those came from that original landscape. And so I think for me, coming to the city, wrestling with these ideas of, you know, I, I, I move into these sort of um, progressive academic spaces, but those class dynamics are very complicated. And so in terms of those, in terms of identity, feeling like, wow, like I'm, I'm not belongings, you know, and, and a lot of that kind of critique um, that I think is really important to think about in terms of stereotypical like progressive spaces and sort of like interrogating like what that means you know to say if you are in um you know solidarity with working class people or have you know specific values you know concerning um economics the material well-being of people like those sorts of things and like how how big of a tent are you having um in terms of Who's included in terms of class? And of course, that gets sticky because the the situation a lot of times is is sort of like the, those cross class coalitions like end up breaking down when it comes to issues of race, ethnicity, LGBTQ acceptance, and uh, and, and that's one of those things that I think in the book recognizing, affirming, amplifying, and promoting particularly people um, of color, uh, queer people in rural spaces to like fight against that erasure and like complicate that narrative of um, a rural space that is only white, only socially conservative. It's one of those things where when you think about building a bridge you're sort of like of two minds because you're wanting to extend an open hand and really be promoting understanding education. And especially like for people, because there's always a difference between people who are specifically like bad faith actors and then people who uh, maybe just don't know or, you know, could be oriented in, you know, a direction that's like less problematic. And so wanting to extend that hand, but then also at the same time, like that worry of if the conditions aren't right, a bridge can also be a weapon. And complicating, complicating that, that narrative in terms of having a critique and having harsh words, you know, for the community of origin, but also having that embrace like of identity and realizing that those complex things are not only at play in myself or my family but in the entire community that I came from and like you were saying is sort of like this microcosm um for where we're finding ourselves in our in our current political landscape so just going back to the voice because I'm thinking of of the voice of the poems uh because to me 
what what was uh, what resonated for me was that the voice on the one hand felt like a voice of advocacy. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it was a very personal. You knew that this voice was part of what they what was being critiqued in some of the poems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That this voice identified with those people, and mm-hmm. then there's something that they just can't continue to identify anymore. Talk about that, about that relationship, mm-hmm. the personal yeah. connection, and and I think that's what you're saying too. And then how hard it is to. It's like you're not really separating yourself. You're not really mm-hmm. changing who you are. This that is who you are too. But how do you reconcile, I guess, mm-hmm. those two things? I think one of the big things that was propelling the writing of these poems was not only that internal wrestling and working through and trying to understand, but knowing there were all sorts of people where I came from, um, some people who moved away and then some people who stayed. And mm-hmm. that idea of... They move um, away because of economies, like just economically wasn't working out for them. There, there's a lot of reasons. And so um, a lot of it can be economic, but then for a lot of people, if you are finding yourself kind of on the more progressive sides of things, like it can be really, really hard to like be in the the space and sort of like sustain where it's not like you're just getting like worn down. Um, and so like, there's all sorts of people that left, you know, for ideological reasons or like also just for, you know, opportunities like elsewhere and sort of like, what is it, especially like it's interesting for, I think for like small town people in this, the nature of the world as it is now, this idea of um of a rural space is sort of like shifted and changed. And so it's not even necessarily like, you know, this idea of like this agrarian space or whatever, which, you know, agriculture is um, a huge part of where I grew up as well, in addition to, you know, oil and gas industry. But that the rural space is also sort of an industrial space as well. I think like this idea of displacement is not only like for people who are physically moving to the city into sort of like, oh, this, you know, the quote unquote new economy that Mm -hmm. is different than the rural, the rural landscape. But I also think that this idea of the rural spaces as industrial and post-industrial, I think, are really that sort of catalyst for for people to be moving. And so this this book is very much um, a conversation. I mean, I don't know, like, if, you know, the word, the use of the word, like, diaspora for, like, rural people who, like, relocate into urban areas. Um, but it's it's that sort of, like, a sense of that conversation that's not only happening for you know, the people who stayed, but the people who left and that we're all kind of having this big conversation with ourselves and with one another, you know, about how to move forward. I think it really goes back to this idea of the American dream for me, because so what I'm, what I'm hearing and what I, the little I know is um, 
you've got the oil, you got the gas people, this, these are corporations mm-hmm. or any of these things, mm-hmm. and they're the ones now that probably have a lot of say in local government, right? Mm-hmm. And then the rural part, I mean, a lot of farms are now corporate farms, you know, so mm-hmm. there are very mm-hmm. little small farmers out there that are actually producing. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing in, in Texas, this happens as well. Mm-hmm. This happens everywhere. And else. especially where I grew up, I would say almost zero non-industrial agriculture just because of the nature of the landscape it Mm. is um heavily heavily irrigated um and so you know it's expensive um, anything yeah anything you're you know you're working in these huge acreages like in these like monocultures and uh so yeah i would even say like compared to other parts of the country you know if you want to take a look at industrial industrial ag you know um west texas um is sort of like um the place the place to do it i think we're also touching on this idea of an identity crisis which i think that's what diaspora there is a connection there because i i come from a family that left you know their countries their home countries to come to the united states two different countries my parents are from two different places there's that longing when you leave that place because you connected with something that mm-hmm. you were taught was going to be part of your life. Mm-hmm. And then you're disillusioned. It is not part of your life. Life is actually too hard there. So you have to go somewhere else because you think that's going to be a place where my life is going to be a little easier, or at least I'll have more opportunity to make something better. But then you're hit with the other reality that you come to this new place and it's really hard to make it you know you really have to fight for a little piece of whatever it is that you can get your hands on there's this longing for something that in some ways never really existed but the idea Mm -hmm. of it is very much real because that's what Mm -hmm. you were taught to believe in Mm -hmm. and in some ways I think right now in the United States of America there's an identity crisis because people believe in this one thing now they're married to this belief through Christianity or whatever Mm -hmm. that's coming in it's just constant disappointment. They're mm-hmm. not really like pointing to the fact that it's capitalism, it's, you know, economics, it's, it's corporation, it's whatever this bigger thing is. You're not pointing a picture at that mm-hmm. big, you're pointing a picture at the ideology that mm-hmm. is changing. You know, there, there's like all this confusion. And I don't know if it's that we have to let go of the traditions and the past ideas that we love so much I don't know if we have to let go of them I don't know if it's just more that we have to open our minds and and create a bigger space for other things to sh- mm-hmm. get in there I I don't know mm-hmm. you know but it's something that yeah. can happen right absolutely and I think this book definitely um uh, mythology like is a whole big part of this book this idea of this place or this idea that that never really existed or how did it exist and and especially as I'm becoming more and more removed um I feel like a lot of times just like sort of like grasping at the pieces and like in conversations you know with people going back and and we all just kind of marvel like with that you know did that really happen or like did that really like thinking about you know the role of like collective memory Um, I think is really important and grappling with it. And then also, I think in the book, looking in terms of 
you know, ideal culture versus real culture. And so taking a look at a lot of communities that a lot of times are um, erased sort of in this um, idyllic, like rural mythology and the books of the book of uh, poems, you've got undocumented people. You've got, uh, you know, I've got a poem where there's a small town drag queen. It's like all of these erasures that happen. And so this idea of like the, the tradition and the values and all sorts of those things, it's where a vocal majority erases these other people and ideologies that have always existed within rural spaces. And even thinking about sort of like historically, you know, the role of the progressive movement, you know, in the early, you know, 1900s in rural spaces and, and thinking about, you know, what, what were those shifts that happened? And like also thinking about it in terms of uh, what happened there, you know, was very uh, calculated and was very, a lot of times thinking about working class communities being like, oh, well, you know, these specific policies or these, you know, the specific ideology be in the better interest and, oh, they're voting against their interests, but like that that's by design. And so this idea of like, how do you align poor and working class people who are struggling, you know, with the interests of capital and to defend it no matter what, like, it's super interesting, you know, going back to where I grew up, and talking to people in hearing about, you know, those economic struggles, and then it's complicated, because a lot of times that's sort of used to excuse, you know, sort of like this rising tide of fascism that we're seeing, and this very calculated move towards Christo-fascism in the government, right? And so that's that's that like pseudo economic populism that gets co-opted you know that that people really cling on to but then that also like doesn't re- absolve them of the responsibilities of the harm that are that is done you know to communities of color uh, to women to queer people and so i think i think that was the really big challenge of the book how to like grapple with with these with these issues and call out sort of like these macro structures that are going on but at the same time holding holding the community and holding people into account you know for the har- for the harm that they're causing do you want to read the poem that you you referenced to all the apostates in the beginning To all the apostates in Trump country, Inauguration Day 2017. They say, that ain't the way you were raised. As though I forgot somehow. As though my identity should be static. As though my politics and life decisions were seamless. Part of a process that never happened. Because now they say, I was always that way. As though they could never be that way. As though I didn't hear the students gasp, you went to school here? When I came back to teach for a season where I grew up. up. 
as though I never read the Bible or wanted to be a missionary, as though I never owned anything monogrammed or rhinestone, as though I don't flatten my accents or remind myself that the department potluck doesn't need potato chips, as though every time I try to dress up, I don't look like I'm going to a Baptist wedding, as though I didn't spend undergrad mispronouncing Descartes, Dada, and Socrates, as though I didn't learn a whole new language so I could understand my psychosocial identity negotiation, as though I could actually use that language where I'm from, as though I don't wonder what words we would choose to describe our own experiences, or if such words exist, as though I didn't have to explain my use of the word butthurt to my colleagues, as though I didn't consciously keep y'all as a sociolinguistic marker, as though I don't already think that what I do isn't real work, as though I don't feel like I have to put up with classism in order to hang out with people who share my other ideals, as though I don't feel like screaming at upper middle class hipsters, take off those trucker caps, you fakers. But don't, because I feel like I fit in pretty good, minus the way I was raised. But I see you, ex-fundamentalists, not raised with social justice, Jesus. I see you, Small town drag queen, not raised to slay in heels. I see you, flower child, crystal healing, toking farmer, not raised to be an artist. I see you, chemists, microbiologists, and science educators, not raised to believe in evolution or climate change. I see you, single mother, not raised to be the breadwinner. I see you, dreamer, not raised to admit you are undocumented. We raised up in the same dust. I see you. I see you. I see you. See, that's one of those poems where, and maybe bridge isn't the right uh, analogy. Maybe it's almost like um, the door's being shut on the on the voice of the poem. Like the erasure is happening to that because you're not, mm -hmm. you're no longer part of this. You're you're, you're stepping too mm -hmm. far away. And the voice is like putting their foot and not making sure that door stays open and then letting mm -hmm. other, others in and recognizing those. Mm -hmm. And so there's that opening up. It's like, we, we, I don't want to not be this. I just wanted mm -hmm. to also include all this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, that for a long time, like feeling like I had to choose and the choice was was always impossible, right? And so I think, not a conclusion of this book because it's always sort of like open-ended and sort of leaving more space like for conversation, but really the book deals with the, the fact that um, the choice is impossible, number one. There's certain certain ways of dealing with the impossibility of that choice. I remember this was sort of like after the, the 2016 election and there was a lot of hand wringing of, you know, how to be reaching out to people in red America or whatever, which is a really sort of weird conversation to like be a part of. And so this, this idea of 
you know, these conversations are happening around and I'm sort of like hearing these conversations and thinking about like all these complex things and all these realities, you know, that I know in my body, like in my lived experience. And in that realizing, oh, how are we going to talk to people? And I remember, you know, in these new spaces, you know, you're sort of like this new sort of polished person with this polished vocabulary. And like, um, I remember one of my my first mentors when I was working in the community college told me that I had no discernible affect. It kind of like freaked me out because that that's like a hundred percent I'm containing this thing that's maybe not even like unacceptable, but uh, like the affect, like I've made it indiscernible, right? And so I think that was the conscious decision to, you know, enter back into that vocabulary, into that syntax and to be, and I was thinking about it and I was, what is the way in which, you know, people in that community are speaking and then I'm going to match that back. Mm. Um, Because like, I think it is very much upper middle class way of uh, of speaking or interacting that's like, okay, we've got to be very soft on the edges and I'm going to approach this very bluntly and talk to me the way that I talk. And, And again, like that idea of like, this is, this is a conversation, not only because there's sort of like two audiences here where it's this progressive uh, movement that I feel like sometimes like I don't like fit in. And and really, like, we could sort of cast that as because I know, like, right now we're dealing with those issues of like a split. But, you know, what is liberalism? What is progressivism? And I would say like, Omar, oh, maybe sort of like the stereotypical idea of you know, the limousine liberal or like whatever, like all of these, all of the complexities that come with that, that have their own mythologies, you know, that need to be critiqued. The rural community and really like doing that about face, talk to me the way that I talk. And, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the genesis of, of how that came about. You can also hear from what you're saying that you have this, you still have this connection that you don't, you're not ready to let go of even though you've moved, you, you, you've done all these other things and you, mm-hmm. your affectation is different, mm-hmm. that that part of you is still there. You know, we all want home, right? We all, mm-hmm. we all want to be able to go back home, even though it's impossible mm-hmm. to go back home. <laughs> so that's, Absolutely. You know, I know that's simplistic, but that's, you know, that's, that's sort of that earthy feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, beyond all the other stuff. Um, so let's, let's read another poem. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's read uh, what I think when I see hashtag all lives matter. What I think when I see hashtag all lives matter. Where I come from, people post memes of Martin Luther King with never rioted and hashtag all lives matter stamped under his folded palms. In these pictures, he is always unmoving, silent, alone, never linked at the elbows with other protesters, line after line, shutting down traffic from Selma to Montgomery, marching, never yanked away from a sit-in, hand smashed flat against the lunch counter in resistance, arm twisted behind his back as police push him down the streets. 
Never with handcuffs locked around his wrists. Never a megaphone pressed to his lips. Never his raised fist. Never slunk behind the railing of the Lorraine Hotel. Never his blood scrubbed from the balcony. Never the crowds laying hands on his open caskets. Never his funeral wagon pulled by two mules. Never the garlands and candles. Never the cities alight in the days after his murder. Never with the hashtag, riots are the language of the unheard. So interesting. Um, during all this stuff that's been going on, so many uh, Republican leaders have been quoting Martin Luther King mm -hmm. Jr. And, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s pacifism was probably one of the most violent things because the response was always violent. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, and th that's what this poem is pointing out. He was protesting silently. He was protesting peacefully, but he was protesting and it angered somebody else. And this idea of that the modern day conservative movement can, you know, co-opt MLK and to be like, no, 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 no. Like, actually, these other people like are the real racists and, you know, MLK would be on our side. I mean, that's, that's that, you know, the power of mythology and controlling a narrative and just really seeing, you know, over the course of like 50, 60 years, the role that mythology can play in things like disinformation. And it's just really disturbing. Well, there's also the corruption of the images, right? I mean, we all grew mm -hmm. up watching these footages of, of what was going on in the 60s. I mean, I know I was mm -hmm. obsessed with like, you know, anything to do with the march in the 60s. I watched all the mm -hmm. documentaries on PBS when I was a kid. But it's that imagery that, you know, you can take imagery and just reinterpret it and repackage mm -hmm. it and fit to the argument that's being, this group of people is being exposed to and saying, hey, look, mm -hmm. And that, that is terrifying, but that is what media is. I mean, media mm -hmm. is very much meant to be manipulated. We're seeing and we're, we're losing control of that. And, and it's free. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah absolutely. But, um, that's what media is. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a reproduction absolutely. of reality. It's going to be manipulated. Yeah. So it's the one poem that I, I, I thought it was that connection to um, what was going on. I mean, this was. And that was interesting. Floyd. Yeah, exactly. That's what, exactly what I was going to say is like that was pre George Floyd. And so like even now more, more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. It was pre Floyd. And yet still people were holding on to that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and again, it's like we're watching something on television in every newscast, clearly someone getting killed by someone else. And yet we're arguing about it. <laughs> yeah. You know I mean. Absolutely. Well, and this this idea, like, especially like where I come from, like this very law and order, and it especially when it comes to like black and brown people, you know, this hyper compliance with authority, with police, and that same standard is never applied. For example, like January 6th. This idea that even if regardless of like what was happening. Is, oh, if he would have done this or he would have done that or, you know, oh, he was a criminal or whatever. And it was like, well, even if, you know, even in your scenario, which 
is not true. The police are not extrajudicial executioners. Like that's why there's supposed to be a justice system. I think that that's what we're seeing in, you know, in these movements is that desire for stuff to be extrajudicial, anti-democratic by design. And that is the desire. And that at the end of the day, it's no, no, no. You know, we think authoritarianism like is a good thing. People are saying the quiet part loud now. And, you know, what to be doing with that? But of course, this is not, I mean, this has always been going on. It's just that it got mm-hmm. amplified because of this one mm-hmm. event. But I mean, this has always been a part of our culture, too. Well, that through line of like, and that, and that's one of the big reasons why like that look at history like is so important in the, in the manuscript going back, you know, mm-hmm. to colonial times of being like, no, there is a through line that like explains how we got here. Yeah. And it's a very complicated line. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> How about like there's no tom- tomorrow? Tomorrow? I'm saying it wrong, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no tomorrow. I always used to spell tomorrow with an A. T-O-M-A-R-R-O-W. And I wrote it that way. The O stretched out up through the nose and the marrow of the finger bones, blunt, calloused, the raw meat of a firm handshake, a man's word instead of lawyer talk, no libel except tomorrow, it's libel to rain. And all of the tomorrows came back red on my papers, but I never could remember that tomorrow didn't have a tail in the middle because all of my teachers said, tomorrow, like me. I always knew that me and the teachers were different from trashy white people who said them, apples, and pointed with cigarette butts smoking, saying this here, nails, yellow, fingering name badges, while I wrote a blog in high school on opendiary.com, and knew that vocabulary was critical to my elevation. That's why it's called higher education. I thought, I'm not like y'all. Forget you. I'm going to college. Exasperated. I used a big word. I wrote online. Tomorrow, I'm out of here. And anonymous, some commenter I didn't even know wrote, what's wrong with you? You must be some kind of redneck hillabilly to actually smell, spell tomorrow that way. That's, there's a lot of conflict there. Um, Absolutely. And I think in making these criticisms, I, I always feel very conflicted. If you are leaving, and, and that, that, you know, that framing that never works because like you're never, you're never leaving. Like you said, you get that like one foot still in in a community, but then turning around and they're like, well, you left. And like, all you're doing is talking shit now that you left. (laughs) And I think what made me in the end, like feel okay with this manuscript and this wrestling is that also I am implicated. Right. And so I have ownership in the problematic nature, in the complexity of all of these things. And I think when we're thinking about, you know, sort of like that national conversation, 
that we need to be having, um, and especially for 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 white folks out there to be like, I am implicated, and I am also critiquing in an attempt of becoming better. And, you know, because I can, I believe we can become better, right? And so this idea of I, I I look back at this manuscript and I think about, you know, there's a lot of like cynicism woven in, but also this idea of sort of like dogged optimism of even if I don't know in the end what is going to happen, I at least have to hold one of the hands out in the hopes of transformation. And so, yeah, and maybe, and maybe that's, maybe that's the thing is, you know, that identity and implication with one hand, but then like the outstretched hand in another. So your your hope is redemption in the end, in some form. I I certainly hope so, because you're <laughs> you're you're looking around and even, you know, some of these poems, you know, had their genesis ten years ago or so. And so like in my in my day job, I work in the nonprofit sector. And, you know, we have a lot of these new, like, helping professionals come in, like, all these very bright-eyed, like, young practitioners and activists. That's super exciting. Remembering myself in that, but, like, also the last 10, 15 years and, like, all of the things, you know, that, that we've been weathering in the work of social justice and activism and social work services. And so I... I was, you know, talking to some of my younger coworkers and they were like, oh, well, you know, when you came on, you know, what would, you know, what were you like 10 years ago or 15 years ago, or it's almost 20 years ago now, you know, coming like into this type of work and transformation and things. And I was like, well, you know, subtract some of the, you know, knowledge and expertise about specific things in our field, dial up the optimism um, about 50%. Thinking, thinking back those um, those early Obama years, you know what it was like to be like an activist back then, and excited, and like yes, we can, and like you know the future looked like super bright, and you know there's this trajectory that we were all very excited about. So trying to hold on to some of that optimism, and not sort of like naively, but in terms of that is sort of like the only hope is that that we not only believe that another trajectory is is possible, reparative action and a way to move forward is possible, but, you know, that we're taking, like, those steps to implement it. Be putting in the work, and then, you know, in the immediate future, we don't know. We don't know what that's going to look like, but to keep moving forward anyway. Yeah. I, I I often find myself in the position of um, taking advantage of opportunities to really mix up the the room, <laughs> you know, creating yeah. space, but also making sure it's a very mixed space. I that's how I maintain my optimism is by doing it because if not, I'll be completely cynical. Yeah. Nothing's that opportunity done. like that's presenting itself. Yeah, and just taking door. advantage of it, um, yeah. and that is work usually because you know. Mm-hmm. There is resistance that you have to get through and all that stuff. You you do all kinds of work. I know you're 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 out there on the field, you're doing many different things, and then you're also doing this creative work. 
And I'm wondering how that works out, that balance for you. Like, what does one do for the other? Do they work together or are they just one is an escape from the other? A lot of this book was written at a time when I was coming out of, you know, working in the uh, like community college system and like, you know, doing a lot of developmental courses and doing, I was a substitute teacher. And so like, I, like you were saying, like just all of this different like temp work that I've done like over the years, really to give the time and space for, you know, the creative life. I think what has happened in recent years, so that's that's super tiring, right? That's like been like sort of like almost like a 20 year journey mm. of, you know, you're piecing together these different jobs and then like you're taking different time off, have like chunks of time to do writing and stuff. And so what I've been finding lately, so last year, well, not last year, um, is it? Wow, it's almost, it's almost two, so it's like I started this position that I'm in now, like the, about the same time, like the pandemic started. So it's, it's been almost, um, it's been almost three years, but, um, I was thinking it was like, (laughs) not, I was like in this like time warp. Um, but you know, where, you know, I'm on the more of the administrative side now in the nonprofit world, which carries its own complications because, you know, you're dealing with these issues of like, money and power and systems and structures you know you're not in direct services and so that that takes a lot less of a toll like on you and sort of like these complicated things around that but also in this space um where it's like i have you know one day job that i do most of the time i do 40 hours you know there's certain times of the year where it gets a little more or whatever But that in of itself being a gift of stability in terms of being a working artist, um, having that stability and having a job that allows you to have that time to be able to do those other pursuits. I go to conferences, I present, you know, I take time uh, to be working in the creative work. And then I really just find it being in stages where for so long, it was like, okay, like I'm in a drafting stage and I have all these manuscripts and I'm sending the manuscripts out. And then it was a time of, you know, I'm in a submission stage um, or I'm in a promotion stage. I had my daughter last year and a lot of people were like, oh, you know, is it like over now? And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> because I, I I give it credit to all of those years where I was like working all those jobs and doing mm. all these crazy things and like whatever having to in the past like juggle sort of like all these different things and and to carve out that creative time because everything else you know is the sort of like that demand on you but if you don't carve out that time and space and opportunities for yourself like it's not going to happen that's the way that it's kind of moving forward and so the way that I was thinking about it is that in a lot of ways like some things have kind of slowed since having my daughter, I, I I choose like very specific things to engage with. You know, this is this is the on ramp. So like, if you're completely stopping, then that then that can be problematic. But even if you're like slowing it way down, then you can always be ramping it back up because you've left yourself those spaces be entering and engaging with the work. And then also, I just want to like give a big shout out my husband in you know the support that he's given 
um, because without sort of like, you know, the domestic structure like that we have and, you know, sort of the egalitarian nature, this wouldn't be possible. You know, I would just be like consumed like with, you know, all of these other responsibilities, whether it's work or family life. What are your new projects? Like, what are projects? Do you have stuff happening? New projects. So it was interesting. In 2021, we, at the nonprofit organization that I work with currently, we'd actually gotten a grant to do an oral history project where we were interviewing migrants and asylum seekers um, in Juarez, but then also first and second generation immigrant communities in downtown El Paso that especially during sort of like the big surges of, you know, asylum seekers, you know, El Paso was at the very center of, you know, ICE is dropping off, you know, hundreds of people a day out onto the street without anywhere to go. Mm-hmm. And so um, this community was part of a system, a structure that was built up of, um, you know, emergency shelter network. And so we were exploring this idea of migrant communities who have been living in the United States longer as receiving communities. And so uh, we had a lot of really great conversations um, and we just found out that our, um, so it was oral history interviews, but then it was also like art projects um, that we were doing in the shelters and in the community center. We got word that um, it's gonna be exhibited here at the university um, in 2024. So that's super exciting. Um, I've never worked in like exhibition spaces. And so like all, you know, working with the, you know, the museum folks to like work on that. And then also something that I would really like to come back to is I worked as a substitute teacher um, in three different school districts here in El Paso, in my hometown, and then also in like rural Appalachia. And it's wild, wild and crazy times. Um, if you like want like a real like anthropological look at like communities and like their systems and structures and like issues, crazy, hilarious times and like weird, absurd. That's that's something that I was I was playing a little bit with in um, a country like you is like leading into this idea like of the absurd because I feel like. And that sort of like goes back to this idea, you know, of the like rural gothic and like all this like weird stuff that's like happening in rural spaces, which is absolutely true. But I would also apply that aesthetic to um, like social justice work and activist work. As a practitioner, you're always like in the absurd. Um, And so substitute teaching like is like right there, like in that same sort of like vein and absurdist, you know, vision of what's going on. So I, um, when I left substitute teaching series, um, basically of like prose poems or vignettes that were all about the experiences that I had as a substitute teacher. And I would, I would really like to like revisit those and kind of complete them and see, because I, I think it's a, a look at communities, at societies, and also labor, you know, temporary workers and all of these things. But yeah, I would, I would, I would really like to to go back to that manuscript and you know be finishing that off and sending it out to the world. So you know, fingers crossed. Hopefully, I like that. It's it's very like reminding us of you know the humor and the humanity that goes along with some of that work. Yeah, but, absolutely. So let's end with one last poem. Okay. Um, and it's the actually the first poem in the collection, "Country Like You." 
Ain't Country Like You, Thoughts on the Victories of the Bundy Brothers and Donald Trump. You act like there's only one way to be country, that country only means white, as though the boondocks did not become white by design, like redlining and the Homestead Act never happened, like Oregon wasn't founded as a white utopia, like freedmen actually got their 40 acres and a mule and then just left for no reason. You benefit from the architecture of exile and genocide and then ask, what? Who, me? It's not my fault if they don't like living in the country. You act like you invented country music, as though the Southern in Southern gospel doesn't just mean segregation. Like you own the folk tradition. Like you're the only ones who drive trucks and dig in the dirt. Like you're the only ones who have ever hunted and fished and drank beer or sang sad songs about getting your woman back or getting revenge on your cheating man. Like you're the only ones who've ever lived in a trailer, acting like black and brown people don't still live in quote unquote real America, even after being systematically targeted and terrorized for centuries, acting like there's no people of color in Appalachia or the Mississippi Delta, acting like Eatonville is on Mars and not in Florida, like migrant workers weren't black before you could get them cheaper, like Central Americans aren't pulling night shifts at dairies in Wisconsin and Indiana, like Somali refugees aren't splitting open pigs in the panhandle of Oklahoma, like all the vaqueros in Texas and New Mexico aren't wearing cowboy hats and shit kickers just like you, acting like they didn't dress like that before you. Like when you say the res is in the middle of nowhere, but sure as hell ain't country like you. Well, thank you, Abigail, for this great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And shout out to your sister, Elena, for the photographs of the book, because I really think it's it just makes the book feel so real. Yeah, so my, my sister-in-law, um, Elena Clausen, um, from Lubbock, Texas, shout out to Lubbock, Texas, um, <laughs> she did a wonderful, wonderful job uh, with uh, the photography, which she, you know, was just doing Gabe photography. And I was like, wow, this is really wonderful. Would we be able to use it in the book? And she was like, oh, yes, of course. And so um, that's been really wonderful. And um, yeah, just amazing to have those alongside the poems there. Well, we, we love it. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Wow, that was an incredible uh, conversation that I finally had a chance to have with Abigail Carl Klassen. Ain't Country Like You is in its second printing, and you can grab a copy at diggingpress.com. Please do so. We have other books for sale there, so feel free to peruse and buy. We appreciate any support you can give us. Um, funding for this book and for all our books comes from the generosity of our donors, contributors, people who submit work to us and pay a reading fee. All these things that uh, people feed into our account goes back into the press and we are able to 
keep our shop going, keep this these books out in circulation. So thank you if you are one of those folks. We love you. And if you want to be one of those folks, please visit our website at diggingpress.com to find out more. Thanks again for listening. Happy New Year. Love you all. Ciao.